I want to just tell you out of my heart before we even get started that the reason that we have wanted to do this study and make it available in this format is because that of all the subjects in the whole school that we offer uh, in pastoral care work, the subject of self-acceptance is probably the one that seems to be the hardest for people to grasp. And yet it's the one that is in many ways I can't say it's most important because everything is important. That's like saying which tire on your car is most important. But self-acceptance is the one that opens up all the the possibilities for growth and maturity and embracing of uh, adulthood and coming into true identity and being able to enjoy friendship and enjoy romance and enjoy marriage and enjoy uh, a sense of personhood. And it is... Uh, therefore, the one area that we want so much for people to understand, and yet it seems to be the one area people understand the least. You know, as we've taught so often, there are three barriers that keep us from coming into wholeness. There are only three. I tried to find four. I remember the first time I ever heard Leanne Payne teach on the four, the three barriers. I, I said, no. Nah, there's got to be uh, more to it than that. And then uh, as I began to work through all the unfinished issues in my own life, I worked through uh, barrier one, the failure to forgive others, which, by the way, doesn't mean that I completely forgave everybody instantly and it was therefore a settled issue. I had to continue to work through those things and to this day continue to have to offer forgiveness uh, when I am repeatedly reminded in, in certain circumstances of the darkness that nearly destroyed me. I have to re-offer that forgiveness and re-confess that forgiveness. But anyway, I learned how to do number one, and then I began to deal with number two, the failure to receive forgiveness, the failure to really believe that I am forgiven. And then, as I began to go on in my life and uh, and and hit areas where I seem to not make any progress. I, I seem to not grow. I seem to still have the same old besetting temptations and the same old feelings of inadequacy and loneliness and fear and anxiety and uh, uh, same old attitudes toward the self. I begin to think there must be something else beside these three so-called three barriers. There's got to be a number four somewhere. But after years of dealing with myself and dealing with people, I've come back over and over again to the reality that there really are only three barriers. Either I've not forgiven someone else, or I have not forg received forgiveness for myself, or number three, I have not ever come into true self-acceptance. Now, uh, the reason we keep looking for number four is because number three, I don't think has ever been clearly understood by us. What is self-acceptance? Let me tell you, first of all, what it ain't. It ain't self-love. Self, you know, I never say that I accept my wife. I love my wife. I never say that I accept my children. I love my children. I would lay down my life for my family. That's not, to, see, when we talk about self-acceptance, somehow we, we get the idea that self-acceptance means loving myself. And loving myself now, I guess one reason that we think that is because we, we, we interpret Jesus' words as love your neighbor as yourself. 
to mean have warm feelings towards your neighbor like you have warm feelings towards yourself. That's not what Jesus meant. Jesus, When Jesus speaks of loving your neighbor as yourself, he's not talking in terms of a warm, fuzzy feeling toward your neighbor. He's talking about choosing to do what is right for your neighbor even when you don't feel like it. The same way you would choose to do what is right for yourself even if you don't feel like it. Jesus, being the creator of man and understanding what is in man, knows that there is a basic self-preservation mechanism in all create uh, in all human beings who uh, and that that creative that self-protective mechanism causes us to do under certain circumstances what we would not choose to do if we had uh, I'd rathers for instance you might have heard a few days ago about a man uh, in the great Northwest who had a, a tree fall on his leg he knew that he could not pull himself out from under that, that limb, and he knew that if he lay there, he would die. And so, I hate to even repeat this, but he cut his own leg off with a pocket knife, drug himself to a place where he could get help, and salvaged his life. And I think one of the most beautiful and moving things uh, that uh, happened in that horrible story was that he said what gave him the courage and the strength to do that was his love for his his wife and his son uh, and recognizing what it would mean to them if they lost him. But uh, there's where that, uh, that, that elusive definition of the self uh, comes in. He did that out of self-preservation, and yet part of what motivated his self-preservation was a deep love and, uh, and care for his wife and child. So it's very difficult to define the self. Dr. Archibald Hart points out that trying to define or capture the self is like trying to capture the horizon. Actually, though we have the word horizon in, you know, uh, in our English language, there's no such thing as a horizon. What is the horizon? It's where the earth ceases to be visible and the sky and the earth seem to come together. But that's actually an illusion. There is no such thing really as a horizon. Yet there is a such thing as the horizon. But go try to find the horizon and capture it and put some of it in a bottle. You can't do it. It exists, and yet it does not exist in a dimension that we can capture and measure. The self is similar to that. When I talk about myself, when you talk about a man cutting his leg off with a pocket knife, did he do that for himself? Or did he do that for his wife and child? Well, how can you answer that? I mean, something in the self motivated him to do something that was uh, just way out of the ordinary in order to survive. So, yes, that was an act of self-preservation. But it was also an act of self-giving in that one reason he did it was to, to, to give to his, his wife and child. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, based on that experience that we just talked about concerning this man and his leg and his family, Jesus seems to be saying, just as surely as there are things in you that you would choose to do to preserve yourself, even though your flesh, your emotions, your desires would be other than to go that direction, just the same way you do that for yourself, do that for your neighbor. It's, it, it may include meaningful emotions, like this man for his wife and child, but it's not 
just for emotion's sake. There's some other elusive uh, uh, characteristic in the self that causes us to be able to do that. Anyway, I'm saying that self-acceptance has been very difficult for us to come into because I don't think we fully understand what it, what it is. I've already said, I don't accept my wife. I don't accept my children. I love my wife. I love my children. So when we talk about self-acceptance, we're talking about accepting something that may not be quite what we would like it to be in our ego. See, our ego is not the same thing as our self. Our mind is not the same thing as our self. Our emotions are not the same thing as our self. What is then our self? Well, we're going to spend some time in this this first section talking about uh, what what self-acceptance is in reference to defining the true self. What What is the self? Not so much defining the true self. We'll get to that later. But d- talking about the whole di- idea of self, the psychology of self, and the theology of self. So let's clarify it one more time. Self-acceptance is not the same thing as self-love if you define self-love as having great affection toward the self. Great affection toward the self, if you'll picture it, is a pretty silly picture. We don't we don't sit around and coddle ourselves. We don't hug ourselves. We don't pet ourselves. We don't stand and look in the mirror and tell ourselves how wonderful we are and how we can't live without us. That would be pretty sick. That's not self-acceptance. That's not self-love. That's narcissism. And we'll talk about what uh, more of that a little bit later. But uh, so, so understand, self-acceptance has to do with accepting some things about ourselves. Accepting, accepting, not loving, not falling in love with, not being thrilled over, not being just head over heels tickled over. I mean, you may not be thrilled with your body size, but you can learn to accept it. You may not be thrilled with your uh, hair color or your eyes or your personality, but you can learn to accept it. And the thing is, when you learn to accept it, you can then transcend it. You can begin to change and become. So self-acceptance is a prerequisite for becoming. And he who begun a good work in us will finish it. We become transformed from glory to glory. But if we don't deal with self-acceptance, we just don't become. We get stuck. And uh, to the degree that we're stuck in in this area of not coming into self-acceptance, to that degree, we're only left with our only other option, which is everything that precedes self-acceptance. Immaturity, self-pity, self-consciousness, selfishness, uh, uh, fantasy, lust, and you know, on and on and on. See, you only have two options. You either come into self-acceptance and grow, or you stay stuck at the point of coming into self-acceptance and all you can do is go backwards into all that has preceded self-acceptance. So that's why self-acceptance is such an important issue. So we're going to dig into this in this study. First, we're going to talk about uh, what it means to to define the self, first psychologically and then theologically. Then we're going to deal with the struggle of coming into self-acceptance and the fruit of coming into self-acceptance. And then finally, we will talk about what the true self is and how the true self is to be manifested in the life of a believer, both here on earth and finally in heaven. There's two issues that we have to deal with when we come to the subject of defining the self. 
There's the theological issue and there's the psychological issue. Both issues are vital. Both issues have things to share that illuminate the other. In other words, a proper theological understanding of the self gives us a, a proper psychology of the self. A proper psychology of the self helps us understand how to appropriate the theology of the self. I'll say that differently so it'll make a little more sense. What we believe about the self in relationship to God is our theology of the self. What does the Bible say about self? Then what we understand the self to be as we as human beings study human beings and study human behavior helps us understand the dynamics of how the self functions. The Bible is not a complete psychology book. We measure psychology by what the Bible says. We don't measure the Bible by what psychology says. The Bible points out the realities that we then discover to be absolutely true when we look at psychology. True psychology affirms everything the scripture has to say about man. So uh, we don't build our psychology and then come up with a theology. We understand the theology, then we come up with a psychology. So it's important for us to understand both. Because see, as usual, the church is all split in two big, two different camps now. We've got the theological camp who says there is no psychology of the self. We've got the psychological camp who says all the theology has been wrong. The theological camp says uh, all this teaching on psychology is humanism and selfishness. And you ought not even be concerned with yourself. You ought not even uh, have a self. You're a Christian. You should die to self. We're going to look here in a minute at the scriptures and find that the Bible never says that you're to die to self. Not in, not in that, not in that terminology. On the other hand, though, in reaction to that, here we go in the other direction. Now everything is poor me. I'm a victim. I don't, you know, I don't have a, 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 a to repent. Uh, I'm, I'm mistreated and I was never loved enough by my parents and on and on and on. So it's okay for me to coddle everything in me and call that my true self. So either role is foolish and unnecessary. But let's deal with the theological question first. Dr. Archibald Hart tells this story, and it so clearly illustrates what I'm trying to say. What happens when we don't have a solid theology of the self? What happens when our theology is bad about the self? Dr. Hart tells this story, and I quote him. I remember her as if it were yesterday. Dark hair, brown eyes, pretty, and only 19. We'll call her Sonia. With her sights set on becoming a school teacher, she had just arrived at the university. In my late 20s, I had just begun working toward a second career in psychology, Dr. Hart says. Also very active in Christian youth work, along with my wife, I watched this vivacious young woman throw herself into the thick of things with enthusiasm. Sonia's solid biblical foundation had prepared her to teach in our Sunday school. Her extraordinary musical talent led her to performing at youth rallies and helping to train our youth choir. What impressed me most about her, however, was her self-confidence. Not that Sonia acted as if she felt superior to others. On the contrary, she seemed extremely understanding and considerate. She seemed self-possessed, serene, and assured. Without apparent defensiveness, she displayed the courage to be imperfect without feeling devastated. In a word, Sanja struck me as a healthy person. If she made a mistake, she readily admitted it and tried to correct it. If she was criticized, she listened carefully to her critic, accepted feedback graciously, and never seemed to bear a grudge. Marked by a deep spiritual commitment and obvious love for her Savior, Sonia showed all the promise of becoming an outstanding teacher. 
But then something went wrong. Eager to become even more committed and to delve deeper into the Christian faith, she began attending a weekly meeting of another Christian group led by a former minister of one of the mainline churches. This man had become disenchanted with his church's theology and had started his own Christian retreat center just outside the city. Visitors could stay over, and many local people attended the meetings as well. The leader had attracted a strong following with his charismatic personality. At first, he seemed to be preaching a legitimate gospel with a strong emphasis on claiming a deeper and more victorious personal life. Sonia found the messages appealing and was drawn in more and more while still participating in our youth group. Slowly, I began to see a change. She often seemed depressed. Her vitality vanished. The brightness in her brown eyes faded. She even seemed to start dressing doubtily. From our conversations together, I noticed increasing self-doubt. Listening to this man's preaching and attending private counseling sessions with him had begun to erode her self-confidence and undermine her esteem. The preacher told her she was, quote, too full of herself, end quote, that no one deserved to be so happy. This man's general ministry style entailed a frontal attack on the self. Adapting a literal interpretation of Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, he preached that everyone had to die within themselves. He interpreted good feelings as sinful and enjoyable acts as wicked. One must hate oneself and be unhappy in order to be truly spiritual. He believed that human nature, even when redeemed, could not be trusted. Slowly, this minister began to manage people's lives, including Sonia's. We were powerless to stop him. He advised people to sell their farms and give the money to his center. He matched the young people for marriage and told couples they could, uh, when they could have children. He became a strict disciplinarian, all in the name of Christ. Under this constant bombardment on herself, Sonia plunged downhill fast. One day I heard that she had been hospitalized in the state psychiatric hospital where I was doing research. After a few weeks of intensive care, Sonia was discharged, but her pain seemed unbearable. She had come to believe that she was the most wicked, vile, debased, repulsive, demon-possessed, and depraved person that had ever walked on God's earth. Early one morning, when she could no longer endure the emotional onslaught, Sonia left the center. She walked the half-mile to the railroad tracks and laid her head down on the street rail, the steel rail. Death came quickly as the train rounded the bend. The inquest found no fault with the preacher. It did turn out to be the beginning of the end, however. Not long afterwards, public sentiment began to turn against this man and his message. The center eventually closed. This true story illustrates just how destructive bad theology can be. True theology does not harm the self. If anything, it repairs it, upholds it, and strengthens it. God's plan of salvation perfectly fulfills the needs of the self. When this plan is distorted and twisted to fit the warped minds of dysfunctional preachers and teachers, havoc ensues in the soul, making shipwreck of the self. Now what you end up with in this kind of theology that teaches the annihilation or the doing away of self in the name of Christian holiness or sanctification is, is uh, an impossibility. You are a self. That is a given. There's no such thing as to be uh, annihilated in the self and still exist. The Bible doesn't teach crucifying the self. The Bible doesn't teach dying to self. The Bible doesn't see, teach the annihilation of the self. 
which is a Hindu uh, and, uh, concept, by the way, not Christian, to, to be annihilated and to just disintegrate into the eternal ooze is absolutely not Christian. To label all concepts of self-esteem, self-worth, or self-acceptance and self-love as self-isms is a complete misunderstanding of both theology and psychology. To insist that a person must not have any feelings about himself uh, or any feelings concerning himself is to describe a person who doesn't even exist anymore. Dr. Hart goes on to say here, the basic message that I always heard preached was the same. Somehow you've got to get free of yourself. The logic seemed to be, quote, Christ has died for us and now lives in us, so you don't have to live as a self anymore. You have any problems with who you are as a person, it is because yourself is getting in the way. There is basically nothing good in yourself, so you might as well throw it away. But no one ever defined what the self is. So how do you throw it away and still remain a person? Dr. Hart says, no matter how unacceptable today's selfist psychologies may be, human beings are still left with a psyche or a soul with which to contend. I am still a self. Whatever anyone thinks about modern ideas, about self-esteem, self-awareness, self-actualization, and since I am a self, I need to know what God's remedies are for self's ailments. I need all the help I can get in understanding the truth about myself, its sinful nature, how it needs to be regenerated and filled with God's Spirit. Then he goes on to say in closing here, Unfortunately, the word self has come to mean many things, but we must not forget that at the root of self is the image of God. Whatever my self is, it is the image of God. I am created in the image and likeness of God. Now, therefore, there's got to be a self in me that is salvageable and that I am to learn to cooperate with and be. That's exactly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. <clears throat> I am crucified with Christ. See, Galatians 2.20 doesn't say kill yourself. It doesn't say crucify yourself. It doesn't say put yourself to death. <clears throat> it says, past tense, I am already crucified with Christ. And as a result of that, I live. <clears throat> Yet not I but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. <clears throat> now examine that verse with me one more time. Let's go through it one more time. If you're where you are, uh, can do it. Write, it. write it down. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice this. I is mentioned one, two, three, four, five times. Of those five times, one I is crucified. Me is mentioned three times and none of them are crucified. So Galatians 2.20 is telling me that of the, of the seven mentions of me or I in the verse, only one of them is crucified, and the rest is supposed to live. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, 
but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Excuse me. I is crucified twice. It's crucified first. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. There's an I who's living. Yet not I. That's a crucified I. But Christ who lives in me. So who is the me Christ lives in? Is Does that mean I'm an empty body and now there's nobody there but Jesus? <laughs> well, just ask your, your family if that's so. I think they would find that uh, somebody's still in there alongside Jesus. It's not just Jesus manifesting through you, my friend. And it's certainly not just Jesus manifesting through all these teachers who are telling you to crucify yourself. So obviously there's a real me. There's a true me. There's a false me. The false me is to be put to death, uh, uh, reckoned dead according to Romans chapter 6. That's the, the old nature, the carnal nature, the sinful nature. But the true me is to live in union with Christ. Not Christ living in me and annihilating me, but I live now in union with Christ. You know, it's really interesting. If you'll take your Bible and just, just do a study, do a word study yourself, look up the word self. There's not a whole lot about self in the New Testament. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, for instance, that uh, they gave of themselves first to the Lord and then to us, Paul says. So we see there that these people had a self that they could do with whatever they chose, and they chose first to give it to the Lord and then to lay themselves down on behalf of Paul. Sounds like a good self, doesn't it? Uh, then in verse... Uh, 13 of 2 Corinthians, verse verse 5, Paul tells us to examine ourselves and prove whether we are in the faith or not. So the, the self can be examined. Then in 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, and this is the verse that everybody seems to know most about but understand the least, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, that men in the last days will be lovers of self. So there is a, a kind of self that you can uh, become narcissistically focused on to the destruction of your whole being eventually. And we'll talk more about that a little later. Then James chapter 1 verse 2 says that the self can be deceived. Uh, there are a few other verses about the self. Let me just let me just give you a list. You can look these up on your own, but just take a look at all that the Bible does say about the self. Isaiah 44 verse 20 uh, says that the self can be uh, that ignorance of the self can cause you to be misled and deceived. Lamentations 3 verse 40 says we are to search the self. Matthew 7 5 says we are to be honest about ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13 5 says we are to examine ourselves. Proverbs 16 32 says we are to have self-control. Uh, Titus 1 7 says we are not to be self-willed. John 5.30 says that our self is limited in what it can do apart from God. 1 Corinthians 4.3 says Christians are not to judge themselves. Matthew 16.24 says we are to deny ourselves. Uh, Matthew 18.4 says we are to humble ourselves. Romans 12.3 says we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Romans 15.3 says we are not to just just please ourselves. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says uh, that the self is what is saved. 1 John 2.6 says the self is to walk like Jesus walked. James 1.27 says we are to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. James 1.24 says we are not to forget ourselves. And then uh, 
the scriptures that we've already quoted to you, 2 Corinthians 8, 5, we, uh, we can give of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we can examine and prove ourselves. 2 Timothy 3, 2 says we can be lovers of self in a sick and broken way. And James 1, 2 says we can deceive ourselves. So none of that has... Did you ever hear one word of crucify yourself, kill yourself, put yourself to death? Then probably the most commonly quoted verse concerning this whole subject is Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, where Jesus says, If any man would be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And somehow we've gotten the idea that denying myself actually means deny that I have a self. It's not what Jesus said. He said, if any man wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself and follow me. He didn't say deny that he has a self. In other words, he doesn't say annihilate yourself, become a non-entity, or become some kind of physical body with nothing in it so that Jesus comes in and takes possession and lives through me, and I'm just kind of a, a container of Jesus. That's, that's not the idea at all. See, it, it all it has to do with a misunderstanding of, of of our body and our soul. You know, the whole dualistic idea that the body is is evil and the spirit is good, which is not Christian but Gnostic. The the, the, the Bible never teaches that your body is sinful and that your spirit is good. Uh, the Bible teaches that you are an entire being. Body, soul, and spirit is one entity. Now, Paul in Romans 7, uh, about verse 18, says, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Now, the very, the very way he says that qualifies it. In other words, Paul is saying, in me is no good thing. And then he, he stops and says, now let me clarify. I'm not saying that in me there is no good. But he, in my flesh. And, and some of us interpret that to mean, oh yeah, you mean your body. Your body's evil, but you're okay. No, that's not what he's saying either. The word flesh doesn't mean body. Paul can't be meaning in my body is no good thing because in 1 Corinthians 3.16 he calls the body the temple of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is in your body and your body is the Holy Spirit's temple, then there's something good in your body. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's not talking about the body. It's talking about, uh, unless it's very clear that it's talking about the body where it says something you know, they came to eat up my flesh. Well, obviously, it's talking about the body. But the, the flesh is the sinful nature. And so Paul says, in my sinful nature, obviously, is no good thing. But in me, me now in union with Christ, there is good. That's the whole meaning of Romans chapter 8. Union with Christ is where the good in me is, is brought forth. My body is made good. My spirit is made good because I'm in union with Christ. You see that? Now, keeping Luke 14, 26 and 27 in mind, where Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Let's look at another view of that in Matthew chapter 10, verse, uh, beginning at verse 30, well, let's see here, verse 39, or back up a little bit to verse 37, he that loves not father or mother, or he that loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that takes not up his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. The word life here, uh, in both Greek and Hebrew, uh, nephesh in, in Hebrew and suke in Greek, both have to do with the soul, 
the life, uh, the, the personhood. Uh, he that would save his life will lose it. He that would save his soul will lose it. You could say it the same way. Uh, what Jesus is obviously saying here is that there is a, a true you that is to be saved, and the way to, to, to save it is to abandon yourself to Jesus. Uh, you don't save your true self by, by trying to be your own person. Neither do you save your true self by becoming some kind of religious freak with no identity of your own who uh, has no opinions, no feelings, no desires, no wishes, no reactions, no emotions, no longings. See, which is exactly what you have to conclude uh, when you hear some of these teaching uh, on dying to self, when they tell you that you're not to have a self and that the whole idea of, of trying to repair a broken self uh, through psychological understanding and healing prayer is is an act of humanism. No one has written or spoken more profoundly and more clearly and more right to the point on this subject than Oswald Chambers. He says this concerning the whole issue of dying to self. He says, quote, I lay down my life, Jesus said. I lay it down of myself. If you are sanctified, you will do the same. It has nothing to do with deeper death to self. It has to do with the glorious fact that I have a self, a personality, that I can sacrifice with glad alacrity to Jesus every day that I live. Self is not to be absorbed into God. It is to be centered in God. And then he goes on to say, concerning death to self and carrying of the cross, he says, the term self-denial has come to mean giving up things. But the denial Jesus speaks of is a denial of my right to myself, a clean sweep of all the decks to the mastership of Jesus. What is the best God has given you? Your right to yourself. Now, he says, turn around and sacrifice that back to me. If you do, I will make it yours and mine forever, the Lord says. If you do not, then all you have is you and yourself, and that spells death. Do you see this? It's so important. In fact, I would really please urge you to get Chambers and just study him. Read everything Oswald Chambers has ever written, but especially on the subject of the self and what it means to take up the cross, what it means to, to know him, to be in union with Christ I die to self means I live to God. Uh, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 16, another really familiar verse that will sum this up for us. Matthew 16, verse uh, 24 and following, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. The Amplified here is very interesting. The Amplified says, Whoever will give up his low life will find his high life. But whoever clings to his low life will lose his high life. Uh, so we're talking about union with Jesus, and in union with Jesus we find our true self. We'll spend our entire last session uh, dealing more with that. But our main focus in this opening session on self-acceptance is to point out the fact that when you hear these teachers that are so vehemently opposed to psychology and so vehemently opposed to inner healing, talking about the idea that this whole focus on the self is nothing but a Christian form of humanism, that uh, you ought not have yourself on your mind, you ought to be able to just ignore yourself, 
Here again, Chambers gets right to the point when he says, We have no business to bring in the admonition of the lower regions that makes us think too little of ourselves. To think, to think too little of ourselves is simply the reverse of thinking too much of ourselves. Either one is wrong. If I am a disciple of Jesus, he is my master, and I am looking to him, and therefore the thought of self never even enters my mind. You see, real self-acceptance on the, in the spiritual world, you know, theologically, we're still talking about the theology of self-acceptance or the theology of the self. Real self-acceptance has to do with uh, having had a, a healthy self-image formed in us in our parental and friendship relationships. We come to Christ and we lay that at his feet. And then we begin to find our true self. Or let's say we have had no self-acceptance as a result of good parenting. Maybe we've had bad parenting. We've had bad relationships. We come to Jesus. Either way, if you come to Jesus with a bad self-image or you come to Jesus with a good self-image, either way, you lay your self-image at his feet and, and you become in union with Christ, so enamored with him and so in love with him that you forget yourself. The goal of self-acceptance, whether we're talking about healthy psychological self-acceptance or a theology of self-acceptance. The goal of self-acceptance is self-forgetfulness. To be able to finally forget yourself so that you can live not self-absorbed, not self-focused, not self-centered, not selfish, but laying yourself at the foot of the Lord and trusting him to, to fulfill your purpose that you were created for. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Wouldn't it be a great thing that every day of your life when you wake up, you don't immediately start wondering if, if you're going to have a good day or if things are going to go your way or uh, thinking about how, how much you hate your body or your hair or uh, your looks and so forth. Now, no sane person is ever going to get to where they don't have a normal concern for combing their hair and wearing decent clothes and looking like uh, a normal human being. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about self-forgetfulness. We're talking about the, the joy of being able to live in union with God in such a way that our identity and our personhood is leaning on him and we're not taking responsibility for uh, manipulating people into our flow of life so that we can get our needs met. See, people who have not committed self-acceptance are always trying to manipulate people so they can get their needs met. It's a wonderful thing when you're finally free from that. Well, now let's talk a little bit about the psychology of self-acceptance. We've talked about the theology of the self. I think we've been able to give you a thorough biblical background uh, that shows you that the Bible does not teach that you are to die to self. The Bible does not teach that you are to crucify yourself or kill yourself or annihilate yourself or hate yourself. The Bible doesn't teach any of those things. The Bible does teach that we are to deny ourself and uh, follow the Lord. You know, I think one of the stories that uh, probably most profoundly pictures what I'm trying to say here, it's a simple story, true story of a young woman who came to a pastoral care school a few years ago very troubled about the fear that her weight was going to come back. She had lost a great deal of weight a couple of years before, and uh, her weight had begun slowly but, but, but surely to creep back up. And uh, In prayer, uh, 
as Leanne was praying with her and ministering to her, she she began to tell the story of this new church relationship that she had come into, and she had uh, been taught in that church about dying to self and putting you know putting the flesh to death and so forth. And Leanne began to ask her some questions about what exactly it was that she had died to. And she said, well, uh, I'm really gifted at making clothes. I can make beautiful clothes. I've always been able to do it. I, I can make a, a beautiful clothes out of even not-so-great-looking material. And she said, I, I've just always been good at it, and I've loved it, but I've realized after coming to this church that I've wasted a lot of valuable time and energy on something that is really uh, carnal and worldly and uh, egotistical. And she said, I put that to death. And Leanne said to her, have you ever noticed that it was right after you put this to death, quote-unquote, that you begin to have the struggle again with your eating? And she was able to help her understand that this wrong teaching that she'd come under, this, this, this idea. You see, you've got to understand what is behind this. There's nothing unspiritual or unholy or worldly or carnal or time-wasting about making beautiful dresses any more than there is uh, a waste of time to make a beautiful picture or to write a beautiful song or to, uh, to do anything human. You see, these people who teach that you're to crucify yourself and, and using that terminology, most of the time they hate the human. They hate the human soul. They're the ones who don't see anything good in anything unless it has a scripture verse stuck on it. Uh, you know, they don't call it... It's not Christian art unless it has a Bible verse inscribed down in the corner. Or a song can't be a beautiful song. It's got to be a religious song. And on and on and on. And that kind of thinking has produced some of the worst art and some of the worst music in, in the world. Uh, of course, at the same time, good Christian art and great Christian music and great Christian literature has come from those who have not, uh, not the slightest concern with whether they are manifesting uh, the worldly or the secular as opposed to the holy. They see the, the goodness of God in all of creation and bless it, and it blesses them. And Leanne was able to help this young woman understand that her gift of being able to make beautiful dresses was a God-given gift, and that she was putting to death the true self, and as a result, this false religious self was rising up and becoming an overweight, frustrated, and angry uh, and suppressed young woman. She was able to help her, you know, be set free from that and uh, sent her home and told her to, you know, go home and make all the beautiful dresses in the world you want to make. And if you want to give them away, give them away. Make a, make a charitable ministry out of it if you want to make some kind of spiritual ministry out of it. But why can't you just let the making of the clothes themselves be uh, an act of worship to the Creator who gave you the gift to make you a maker. She makes alongside her creator. And uh, that's what we're all supposed to do. We're not supposed to. You see, this woman was killing, putting to death the true self. Now, in self-acceptance, she wouldn't have even had to think about whether what she was doing was spiritual or not spiritual. She would have just been responding to the gift that God had given her. Well, let's talk now about the psychological development of self-acceptance. Uh, we need to understand the human side of this. Speaking of being human and accepting and loving the human as being 
the image of God. God intended for all of us to be loved by both a man and a woman for at least 18 to 20 years of our life. Sin has interrupted that, of course. Sometimes our parents die early. Sometimes there's divorce. Sometimes there's cruelty. Sometimes there's sexual abuse. Or sometimes there's just neglect and indifference and ignorance. But we are all the product of a fallen race, and we are all injured by that, of course. So when it comes to the the love and the care that we need to bring us into self-acceptance, we all lack, especially this generation. That's the reason why you wanted these tapes. You're struggling with it. You hurt over it. You've been injured over and over by attempts to work through this in ways that were not healthy. And now you're wanting to get down to the biblical truth so that you can finally get past this. But let's talk about the psychological development of self-acceptance so that we can understand on the human level uh, what, it, what it was that should have happened that didn't happen and how God offers us the remedy for it in Christ. There's a line over which many of us never cross. It's the line between adulthood and immaturity. It's the line between hearing many voices and trying to obey all of them and hearing the one voice that gives us a sense of integrity and identity and security. The line of self-acceptance is the line that we cross after puberty. It should happen somewhere between about age 18 and 21, and it varies from person to person depending on their circumstances. But at any rate, it is the loving father's voice or father figure, father replacement voice in our life that gives us a sense of identity, security, and gives us the definition of who we are and helps us graduate into adulthood. Most of us in this generation don't have such a voice. We've never known the touch, the love, the care of a father or father substitute that could give us uh, a final definition of who we are. And so, therefore, we're left only to deal with what we have learned on our own. And that's pretty sparse. What I mean by that is the only the only way we have of measuring ourselves now, if without an adult authority giving us a command to come into life and to embrace adulthood, all we have to go by is what we've gathered as a child. So we have a child's viewpoint, a child's mentality, a child's emotions. And if that child was an abandoned or hurt or misused child, then we have all the twisted viewpoints of life that we uh, see as a child clouding our vision now as adults. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, unaffirmed adults looking at life through the eyes of the wounded and rejected, self-pitying or angry or rebellious or pouting or sexually misused child causes us to see life just that way. So what do we mean by an affirming father? When we say that self-acceptance comes when we are affirmed What does it mean to affirm? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that a man can sit down with a boy or a girl at some point in their pubescence and say to them, I just want to affirm you. (laughs) Just the word affirm can't affirm. Uh, Most of us not quite sure what affirmation is anyway, but the very act of doing it that mechanically doesn't work. Let's define affirmation, first of all. To affirm means to say yes, basically. It means to say, 
is this true? Yes, I affirm that this is true. That's what affirm or affirmation means. It means to say yes to something. When we, when we talk about a father's affirmation, what we're talking about is a man who has made himself valuable to us by proving himself through a long period of time as being a source of wisdom, stability, love, and truth. And if he has proven himself to be that, then his word has some authority. It's very unlikely that a father who has been an alcoholic can affirm you. It's very unlikely that a father who has sexually misused you or beaten you or been dishonorable and unkind to your mother can affirm you. Nothing he has to say has any value. And so affirmation has to come from a father or father substitute who has a track record that is trustworthy. Therefore, he has authority. Then affirmation comes not just by words, but by actions and attitudes over a long period of time. A child does not internalize affirmation just by one good statement, although it's amazing how kids can take one loving statement and, and go on it like camels go with just a little bit of water across a desert. One affirming statement can sometimes be just the, the seed the Holy Spirit needs to blossom that uh, word into a full-grown tree of, of maturity. But for the most part, a child needs more than just a few little words here and there. Healthy affirmation has to do with a lifestyle. It has to do with loving your children and seeing the good in them and blessing it. Blessing it not only with words, but also in the way you respond to the child. And uh, this has not happened in our culture for uh very, very many people. They grow up waiting for someone to affirm them, waiting for someone to bless them, waiting for someone to tell them they are valuable as people. Affirmation is not based on performance. Real affirmation, the kind of affirmation that goes into you and gives you a foundation on which to build a life, cannot happen as a result of one encounter. As we've already said, it it, it, it soaks into us and, and has to be re uh, you know re-communicated 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 until it finally soaks in and we take that to be part of our true identity when that hasn't happened then we try to find it all kinds of ways so people who have never come into self-acceptance are very manipulative usually they're very uh they're trying to get their needs met so they're always pulling strings trying to get uh, people to respond to them in a way that will give them a sense of security within. And so as a result, they usually are rejected. So the more unaffirmed they are, the more unaffirmed they become. The more unwelcomed they feel, the more unwelcomed they become. And though the people who really do love them can't ever get it through to them. And as a result, this makes them very dangerous to the people who love them. Those who really want to care for them and show them uh, their real feelings can never get through. Uh, have you ever loved someone like this? Have you been someone that other people have loved, but no matter what they do, they can never communicate it enough, they can never do enough, they can never convince you? You become a source of, of constant pain and heartache to them, or they have become a constant source of heartache to you if they're the ones who don't receive this word of affirmation. Father Scanlon in his little book, Inner Healing, gives uh, five points, Father Michael Scanlon, 
of people who need what he calls a heart healing, those who have never come into self-acceptance. He says that the characteristics of these people are, number one, a judgmental spirit that is harsh and demanding on self and others. Number two, a strong perfectionist attitude demanding the impossible from self and others. Number three, a strong pattern of fearing future events. Number four, a sense of aloneness and abandonment, especially in times of decision-making. And number five, a preoccupation with one's own guilt and a compulsion to compete for position and success. Father Scanlon goes on to note here that these patterns are present in an otherwise deeply religious life. Usually, there's a constant expectation of growth and breaking through and coming into new spiritual freedom, but it never seems to come. These are people who have never come into self-acceptance. They are people who are still psychologically bound to a childish way of looking at life and have never been able to embrace adulthood. They're in a lot of pain, and the pain seems to be constant. And it's important for these people to embrace the pain as a messenger and ask the Holy Spirit what the pain means. Where is it coming from? What's causing it? How should I respond to this pain? Instead of constantly fighting against the pain or constantly trying to get the pain alleviated by, as we said before, manipulating to get their needs met, they need to come to a point where they can bow to the pain as a messenger from the Lord that something's wrong and needs to be set right. What is it? Leanne says here in Restoring the Christian Soul, the simple fact is that if we do not humbly accept ourselves, we cannot love and accept others. If we are hypercritical of ourselves, we will also criticize others. The pain that we may be in, the pain in our relationships, the pain in, in our own psyche, has to do with this hunger for affirmation. The Lord allows the pain to bring us to a point of crying out to Him to find out what's wrong. Walter Trobisch says in his book, Love Yourself, At the root of every depression is the feeling of having lost something. The deepest root of depression is the feeling that I have lost myself and have given up hope of ever finding myself again. There is nothing in me worth loving. This means that self-acceptance and depression are closely related. And I see this depression showing up in younger and younger cases. Leanne points out in her book, Restoring the Christian Soul, concerning this generation and how every unaffirmed generation produces a, a generation even more unaffirmed. She says, the reason, then, that so few come out of puberty and adolescence having accepted themselves has to do with the breakup of the home, the impaired ability of mothers to nurture their infants, and the absence of whole affirming fathers. Additionally, in the social environment today, with its overheated, even pornographic media, its autonomous and thoroughly secularized public school system, and its culture actively hostile to Judeo-Christian morality and values, young people are called out from under their parents' influence before the necessary affirmation has been set in. In these circumstances, the father loses his children to the peer group and to terrible psychological harm from drugs, 
immorality, and so on before they even get through adolescence. So in closing, I need to point out in the few minutes that we have left in this session that though we've repeatedly said that it's the affirming love of the Father that sets into us a solid uh, sense of personhood and gives us the freedom to move into adulthood, we now have a generation that even affirming and loving fathers have a hard time uh, communicating uh, self-acceptance to because of what we've just read from Leanne's statement. Uh, self-acceptance is being interfered with by the media, by the pictures and the images and the definitions that pour into our psyches from radio and television and advertising and motion pictures, uh, the very mall that is the common marketplace of our culture today. Uh, screams at us from the time we walk in the door to the time we walk out that we don't look right, we need a certain kind of clothes, we need a certain kind of body build, we need a certain kind of face or hair, or on and on and on. And this is difficult enough for those who have come from a healthy background to withstand, but for those who still have the, the, the deprivation that we've been describing in this teaching of... Uh, Number one, no loving affirmation from a loving father. And then number two, a Christian definition of the self that is one of not truly Christian uh, teaching, but of a, an imposed legalism that tells you you're to kill and crucify and hate yourself. Then no wonder we have the psychological and emotional and sexual suffering that we have in our culture. Now, sometimes the depression that accompanies the struggle of self-acceptance is not a bad thing. I wrote in my own prayer journal a few years ago, all that has filled my soul in my bent condition filled my soul with what I thought was precious and what I defined as life. Now God has shown me truth. I must empty out everything that I embraced that I called life. And the emptying out of that false vision has left me feeling depressed and lonely. I await in his presence for the coming of the true and the real and the good. I wrote that several years ago at a time in my life when I had come to the realization that though I heard lectures on this subject, I had read material, I had a pretty solid grasp on the, the material, I could even teach it, but I had never worked through it. And God allowed the pain in my life to surface in, in, in certain degrees and at certain times so that it would bring me to a point of, of having to face on the heart level what I had only dealt with intellectually and mentally. And I want to say to you who are listening to this tape that if you're in pain, maybe you've been to a lot of the conferences, maybe you've read all the books and yet you still hurt, let me ask you, have you ever seriously taken the courageous plunge with the Lord into the issue of self-acceptance on the heart level? It's easy to read books. It's easy to listen to tapes. The hard part is to put the book down, turn the tape off, and say, okay, Lord, let's get to the bottom of this. I don't know how to accept myself. I wish I was somebody else. I wish I had someone else's face, someone else's life, someone else's body, someone else's personality. I'm constantly, like an adolescent, looking at others to see how they look in hopes of 
maybe finding in me qualities that I can accept too. And it never works. Rather than finding affirmation from others, all I feel is more rejection. And my heart is broken and I can't live that way anymore. Holy Spirit, I ask you to take us. Take us there. In Jesus' name, carry us into the depths of self-acceptance. Not just the theology of it, not just the psychology of it. Take us to the very bottom and then bring us back up again to the heights of your creative purpose for us. We ask in Jesus' name. In our next study, we're going to go into the whole issue of the struggle, the struggle of self-acceptance. We've talked about the psychology and the theology. Now let's, now let's just talk about the nuts and bolts of it. Let's talk about the pain of it. Let's talk about the crying. Let's talk about the getting in touch with the memories. Let's talk about what we really feel when we walk in the mall or what we really feel when we're in a room full of people that we admire or what we really go through on the inside, though we've learned how to fake it on the outside. The suffering that we go through because there is still in our minds and hearts such a, such a long road from our insides to our outsides. They don't match. Our outsides have, have developed a certain way of behaving that copes. But our insides, we hurt, we long, we starve, we feel, and we feel that we'll never get past this. Well, you will get past it in Jesus' name. But you have to begin by dealing with the pain where the pain is. And it's not in your head. It's on a deeper level. The tapes help. The books help. But how do you get down to the rock-bottom pain? That's what we'll deal with in our next session.